G'day and thanks for tuning in to the Outpost Church podcast. We are in a series called How Did We Get Here? And it's really about looking back to the early church and then comparing to other times in history and going, how, when we started like that, did we get here? And in particular, we're looking at the last 504 years or thereabouts and some of the key moments and um, why they matter to the global church today. Hope it helps. we never have to go through anything alone that you are with us um, to the end of the age and beyond we just thank you and honor you uh, for your love and for your presence here and uh yeah we just lift up shane too as he comes to bring the word to us tonight um that we would have ears to hear what you want to speak to us lord and we'd be responsive to it amen take a seat thank you and good afternoon everyone I've just spilt some stuff down here. Whoops. We are going to be looking at Acts chapter 5. So I encourage you to grab a Bible, whether that be on a phone, whether that be one of the hard copies down here, one that you brought. But open up to Acts chapter 5. And we are going to spend some time looking at that. And we're going to spend some time also investigating it. So we have um, been looking at this the last few weeks been working our way through the first few chapters of, of Acts, um, and we are going to pick up the story uh, where we're getting some particular um, events, and then we're getting some more general comments, and so we see a bit of what it's like for a day in the life of the early church, and we're going to pick this up in Acts chapter 5, starting at verse 12, and just want to encourage you with this great to have the Bible open to this particular passage, but depending on your um, best way of learning and engaging in, um, in story, it might be helpful for you to be reading along or it might be helpful for you just to try and imagine this actually unfolding. Put yourself in this particular story um, and try and uh, envisage it happening. God has given us an imagination for a reason. And this is one reason we have an imagination, so we can actually uh, learn these things, and we can, um, yeah, I think we can feel it more deeply when we do when we do that. So, the um, apostles have just been in prison uh, because of the jealousy of the the elders, the religious leaders of the time. They've been put into prison, and they uh, were threatened. They couldn't really hold them in prison. They had no real reason to have them in prison, but these guys rejoiced at being counted worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. They were asking for more boldness. They were asking for God to stretch out his hand um, and perform more signs and wonders. And we read that this happens. Verse 12. Many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared to join them, but the people spoke well of them. Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers multitudes of both men and women as a result they would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats so that when peter came by at least his shadow might fall on some of them in addition a multitude came together from towns surrounding jerusalem bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits and they were all healed 
Same thing we read about. Like you can read in Matthew's gospel of what happened with Jesus. They brought the sick and all of them were healed. And the same thing is happening um, with the apostles and the believers. Verse 17. Then the high priest rose up. He and all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. When the high priest and those who were with him arrived, they they convened the Sanhedrin, the full council of the Israelites, and sent orders to the jail to have them brought. But when the servants got there, they did not find them in the jail. So they returned and reported, We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing in front of the doors, But when we opened them, we found no one inside. As the captain of the temple police and the chief priests heard these things, they were baffled about them, wondering what would come of this. Someone came and reported to them, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the commander went with the servants and brought them in without force, because they were afraid the people might stone them. After they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin, And the high priest asked, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Look, you've filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than people. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken out for a little while. He said to them, men of Israel, be careful about what you're about to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men rallied around him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and attracted a following. He also perished, and all his followers were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan... Or this work is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. They were persuaded by him. After they called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and release them. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Every day in the temple... And in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Amen. We're going to do a really similar process to what we did last week. So for the adults and for the kids, we all did a thing called the Discovery Bible Method. And the Discovery Bible Method has an ABC component to it. So A is ask. So you ask how you went with the challenge you set last week.
Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you so much for the amazing gift of your word. Uh, thank you that we um, have been able to spend this time looking into, uh, seeking to understand your, your word. And I pray, Lord, that it would bear fruit. I pray that we would put into practice the things that we're learning. And I pray that our hunger would grow. I pray that we would be people who hunger after your word more than anything else to chase after you and to yeah, be obedient to the things that you call us to do. So, Lord, we ask that you would uh, bless us over the rest of today. I pray that we would uh, discover new things and then put them into practice for your glory and for our good. Hallelujah and amen. So we are looking at uh, a bit of church history at the moment. So we're doing a series called How Did We Get Here? And it's a question that we can easily ask as we look back to the early church and we see what happened there. And then we look at some of the things that are going on now and it's like, how did we end up at this point when we started as we did? Uh, but we also have a look at uh, some different moments in church history and ask how we ended up there at that point. How do you get from the peace teachings of Jesus uh, to the Crusades? Uh, how does that happen? Um, and basically it happens through human nature. It happens through people uh, who have an ability to sin. Um, we have just had a look at uh, Acts chapter 5 and you know, we get to, to see some pretty amazing stuff that the apostles were doing. We get to be really challenged as we, we see the way they stood up under persecution um, but then we see this flip, like it goes from the church being persecuted to the church being the persecutors. I'm like, how does that work? How do you get from one to the other? Uh, but there is much in our, in our history that should make us grateful to be where we are right here, right now. Like, obviously, it's um, a bit of a hot topic, the mandated vaccines, but it's a whole other level to have mandated religion. And even after the, or even during the Reformation, it was still mandatory to be in the church. So we fast forward. Uh, this, is, this is under the reign of the first Queen Elizabeth. And this is how it would be. I wonder how this would go for, for outposts. Uh, to enforce uniformity, she decreed that if for four weeks you failed to attend the Church of England with its prayer book, liturgy, you could be arrested and remain in jail until you recanted. If you missed for three months, you would be deported. And if you returned to England, you'd be executed. Game over. Four weeks, you're in trouble. Three months, and you're as good as dead. That is, there's, you know, that's how to close the back door of the church. Hey? Oh, man. But what a, what a shift. So we've read about these guys who were in a Jewish culture and they weren't following the Jewish pattern as was understood by the Sanhedrin at that time. And so they're called in front of the Sanhedrin and they are in trouble, right? And then you only have to fast forward a few centuries and it's reversed. Suddenly it's the Christians that are in power that are enforcing Christianity on others. A 
massive leap, a massive change. And even in the, um, the, the Reformation, it was, it was still going on. So with Elizabeth, that's a little way in. So you had like Henry, uh, then eventually went back to Catholicism for a little while under Mary. And then Elizabeth is two more monarchs on from, on from that. So this is getting on a little bit and it's still compulsory. And within England, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, you had the Congregationalists. Um, and so they were persecuted, and then they go across to New England, um, and they're the ones that are the pilgrim, the founding fathers, the pilgrims uh, that kick off things from a colonial sense in North America. But then they've gone there for religious liberty, but then they persecute others who don't want to do things the same way that they do. And there's an official separation between church and state, but that wasn't the practical outworking of it. And so we're looking at a few of the um, different denominations that have emerged over the past 500 years. Because prior to the Reformation, the only real church split that happened, if you're following uh, the Roman church, was between East and West. And so in the 11th century, that was when the Roman Catholic Church separated itself um, out from Eastern Orthodox. And... It was about authority. It was about them not accepting one another's authority. But they were separate geographically from each other. And so it wasn't like you had Eastern Orthodox people within the Roman Catholic area. They were just separated out. And so you get to the 16th century and you suddenly have this explosion of uh, all sorts of denominations from really the one church for 1,500 years, we have had countless numbers of new denominations that have emerged over the last 500. And one of the positive things about that is that there has been this shift to voluntary religion. And it's actually the First Amendment from the US Constitution. The First Amendment is freedom of religion. Because initially it was just you had to be a congregationalist. Everyone's signing up to this. But then you have these other churches that emerge um, and suddenly people have the freedom to choose. Uh, And I want to look today a bit at the Presbyterian Church. So the Presbyterian Church is one of the three churches that came together to make the Uniting Church back in 1977. And the Presbyterian and the Congregationalists came at it from quite a different point of view. So... You've got the Catholic Church and the Church of England, which we call the Anglican Church, that have bishops. And so that's Episcopalian. So the governance comes back to one person. So one person is in charge of a congregation. One person is in charge of a group of churches. And then you have the Presbyterian model, which says you have elders that are in charge of one church. And then a presbytery, a group of people again, are in charge of a group of churches. And then you have the congregationalist approach, which is very autonomous. And so the whole, this is how the Baptists operate, so the whole church will vote on a whole bunch of different matters. And so it's the closest we have to a democratic approach. Um, But even within a Presbyterian church, you will have the members who will elect the elders. 
And so there is that still that democratic process. But it'll only be the election of the elders. It won't be speaking into lots of different decisions in the church. Um, so there is that distinction. But one of the key things is that you have um, a real sense of autonomy in the congregationalist approach where it is just our church. We are not really accountable to other churches, whereas the Presbyterian model says we do actually have a responsibility to one another and a responsibility to a governing authority. And so there are advantages to that. And we in the Uniting Church have basically just adopted the Presbyterian model of governance. And so we have a series of interrelated councils. We don't have a hierarchy. And sometimes it feels like a hierarchy, sometimes it operates like a hierarchy, but the theory of it is not hierarchical. We have over the whole nation, we have the assembly, and the assembly is responsible for things like doctrine. And so if we're looking at changing what we believe, then that is an assembly issue. Then we have the state level, which is a synod, and so they are responsible for things like the properties. So all the Uniting Church buildings in South Australia belong to the Uniting Church Synod of South Australia. Things like insurance, a lot of the boring stuff um, really comes under the control of the Synod. And then the Presbyteries, they're the ones who will actually ordain people for ministry. We have Mr. Robert Cartridge, who is currently a candidate for ordination in the Uniting Church of Australia. Can we give a big warm welcome to Rob? It's good to have you here, mate. He loves attention. Just look at him for a little while. He'll just soak it up. Like, give me more, give me more. <laughs> so it's the presbyteries that will ordain people for ministry. Um, and it's the presbyteries that will take care of things like the pastoral care of ministers. And they'll also are the ones who will do discipline where that needs to happen. Um, and then obviously church council responsible for the local um, church. And in the Uniting Church, for us as outpost. Our church council and our elders are one and the same. But for other churches, they have separate church council and elders. Um, and so the elders be responsibility for uh, the teaching, responsibility for the pastoral care, whereas the church council for pretty much every other area of governance within the church. For us, we've chosen to do one and the same. Um, yeah, so we owe quite a bit to Presbyterianism. Um, but this really interesting thing emerged at the same time that religion from a political sense became optional and voluntary is something emerged far stronger than it had, certainly for hundreds and hundreds of years, and that was predestination. So all of a sudden, so one of the key tenets of Presbyterianism is the doctrine of predestination. And... So whilst we in the Uniting Church have adopted very wholeheartedly the governance structure, um, as a whole, there would be more people in the Uniting Church that push back uh, on or reject the notion of predestination than those who accept it. It's certainly not everyone would reject it, um, but that really came to the fore around that time through John Calvin, you know, Calvinist um, theology, says that what is sometimes called double predestination where God predestines people to go to heaven and he predestines people to go to hell. 
Um, and it's a, a fascinating uh, look in Scripture um, as we look at passages like Romans 9 that certainly strongly push um, that um, agenda. Um, but you also have things like John 3.16, you know, all who believe. It is simply those uh, who believe. Anyhow, um, I'm not going to spend a long time getting into that tonight, but it's, it's, it's something that is very key within uh, the Presbyterian tradition. And it just goes to show how significant it was 44 years ago when three churches with a massive history and great diversity said, we're actually going to lay these things aside for the sake of unity. Even though we have different traditions, even though we hold theology and we believe stuff quite passionately, we're willing to actually lay some things aside in order to be together, in order to do something to promote unity. There are not many occasions where churches have come together as one. It happens far more regularly that churches that were one suddenly are many. And it's a really, really big thing. But having said that, the Congregationalist Church, there was a whole bunch of individual Congregationalist Churches that didn't join. And that makes sense with their theology. Because each one has the right to choose whether they're going to join the Uniting Church. And so a whole bunch of them didn't join. Even though officially the Congregationalist Churches did join, a whole bunch held back, um, as did some Presbyterian Churches. Um, but for me, two things from today that I, I want to finish with are we um, have chosen as a church to be accountable. And that's a really important thing. And it's a really important thing for us individually to choose to be accountable. And it's an important thing for us as a church to choose to be accountable to others, not on our own, not rogue, but actually accountable to one another. Um, and that we would be willing to lay down our own thoughts, even our own strong convictions for the sake of unity. And something that's been really exciting uh, for me over the past few months is that we've um, brought a number of pastors together. So Christy had an idea. Uh, we had an idea of like, let's, it's not that amazing an idea, to be honest, it's pretty logical. Let's bring some pastors together to pray. But Christy's idea was, let's call it Onka Prayinga, hey? And so we developed two different invitations. Everyone that we thought would be, you know, receptive to that little pun, uh, we sent this Onka Prayinga uh, promo to, and everyone we thought would just be annoyed by it and would stay away because of it. Just Onka Prayinga pastors coming together to pray um, and go do it. But we've had three different times that we've done that. So we did one in the uh, second term, once in third term, once in fourth term. Uh, where we've brought pastors together. And one thing that happened the first time we did it was that there were three pastors that have all been in this area for over 20 years who met each other for the first time. So two of them were within about two minutes drive from each other. And the other was more like 15 minutes away. But over 20 years of full-time ministry, 
here in Onkapringa and had never crossed paths previously. And it was just wonderful to see them come together. It is important that we are actually coming together and we're seeking ways to unite. It's so easy to divide. Um, and my personal convictions around predestination um, are that I, I don't agree with it. But what I don't want to do is set up what's often called a straw man argument and just denounce it and mock it because you can definitely arrive at an understanding of that from reading the scriptures as you can arrive at the Arminian understanding which is that it is a decision that we partner in. We have a part to play in choosing whether or not um, we accept the offer of salvation that comes from God. But it really matters more. What matters to me more um, is that we will honour one another and we will lay aside these things because we don't know. Like, we don't know for certain and it's not our decision who is saved and who is not. So we, we can't know this stuff 100%. But we can know that he loves us. We can know that he died for us. How that exactly works its way out, there's many different theories about. Um, but let's major on the major stuff. Um, I'm going to pray. Would you join with me? So, Father, I want to thank you for the amazing reality of what you have done for us. I want to thank you for those that have followed you right throughout history. I want to thank you for those who um, have helped our understanding of the faith, those who have challenged us in, in different ways. I want to thank you for those that have stood up at times that just needed to have uh, the, the system challenged. And I want to thank you for those that have done that faithfully. I want to thank you for the, the early church who were willing to be persecuted, even rejoiced at being considered worthy of suffering for the name above all names. And I pray, Lord, that we would learn from them and we would learn from you, that we would be willing to suffer for your name, that we would be willing to, to die for you, but not willing to kill for you, not willing to bring division uh, and not putting in a stumbling block for others. Lord, we ask that we would learn from history. Uh, we ask that yeah, we would be a people who bring more and more unity wherever we go. I pray that we would be accountable to you, we'd be accountable to one another and live lives that do bring you glory and do bring others into your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to do um, Methodism next week, which is my personal favourite out of the three. I'm not going to lie. Um, it is a good chance for us to have a look a bit more at our history. And from a Uniting Church perspective, um, there's a whole bunch of things that we are encouraged as ministers to invest in. Um, but there's only actually one person's um, sermons that we're encouraged to, to, you know, specifically to look into. And that's good old Johnny Wesley. So John Wesley's 44 sermons. Um, so next week I'll give a summary of John Wesley's 44 sermons and it will be fantastic. Um, but what was that? Yeah, we'll still be here on Tuesday. That's right. Um, 
no, there's, there's lots for us to learn from, from all of these different traditions. Um, and it, it's helpful in understanding where we've come from and, and where we're headed. Um, yeah, I just invite you to stand to your feet. Um, I want to close with one of my all-time favorite blessings. And it is from, from Jude, the only chapter in Jude. So I encourage you just to take a posture being ready to receive. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, power and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. God bless you guys. We are about to have our dinner. And just encourage you to, if you hadn't, didn't get a chance to share what you got from Acts 5 earlier, um, share it over dinner. Um, and if you're sitting with people that you weren't chatting with earlier, then yeah, share what it was that you picked up from that time.